This podcast features explicit language and spoilers. Welcome to Better Late Than Never, a movie podcast where I invite a friend to watch a blockbuster, a cult favorite, or an otherwise culturally significant film that they've never seen before. After we watch the movie, my guest will decide if it was better late that they've been missing out by not having seen the film, or never, the movie just didn't live up to the hype for them. My name is Dave, and I'm your host. This week, we're going to be watching Terry Gilliam's 1985 cult classic, Brazil. And I am joined by two friends this week, Josh and Faith. Hello, guys. Greetings. There's something wrong about that intro. You say, a friend. There's two of us. It's rude. Well, it's kind of boilerplate. Josh, I'm hurt. I've always thought of us as one person. Oh, yeah. It was great to meet you um, a few months ago, by the way. To be honest, Josh, I've always thought of us more as colleagues. How dare you? I'm mainly an admirer of your work. Well, that's that's, that's better than the alternative, I suppose. Guys, this is a slightly different than usual situation because I have not seen the film, but one of you has. Yes, I've been waiting all week to do this, if you'll excuse me, Faith. Dave, you've never seen Brazil? That's right. Wow. Wow, Dave. Well, I mean, I've heard of it. I know a little bit about it by reputation. I actually think this is a movie that it's perfectly okay to have missed. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's a huge blockbuster. I mean, this isn't Star Wars. It's, uh, It's a cult hit. It's definitely a cult hit. I mean, I like Terry Gilliam. I've always wanted to see this movie. I just never got around to it. I'm just shocked I had never forced you to watch it at Clark. Yeah, because you certainly talked about it enough. I don't know. I feel like I have felt more guilty or gotten more flack for not having seen this movie than a major blockbuster like Jaws or Star Wars. Who gives you shit about not having seen Brazil? I don't know. I just feel like it's one of those movies that would be up my alley that I should have seen. Hmm, that's it, fair. If you have people in your life making fun of you for or giving you guff for not seeing this, they're good people. That's yeah. That's what I would I say. I guess I just have amazing friends. Uh, so to bring it back around to you, Faith, you, like me, have also not seen Brazil. That's correct. And we have similar friends. I guess they're just more aggressive about giving you shit than me. Yeah, I guess maybe you were better at bluffing. And I'm here because I have seen Brazil and I have seen it Mm, I was trying to track this at least 15 times. Yeah, that's. I brought you on board as uh, a way of getting the super fan perspective. I'm basically the ringer. Yeah. So, Josh, not only have you seen Brazil, but you're just a big fan of Terry Gilliam in general. And uh, I know normally we try and predict who directed it, but I did. I was aware that all three of us did know who directed this film to start. So, 
Yes. I'm yes. also a very big, not necessarily Terry Gilliam fan, but I know he was in Monty Python, and I'm a mm-hmm. huge Monty Python fan, like, since I was a kid. Rightly so. Yeah. And fucking he, awesome. He had, I, I think I, it was like a backdoor, uh, I didn't realize it was in college, I watched a Terry Gilliam movie. Which one? I, I uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Oh, I always forget he directed that. Yes, because and it is arguably, well, you know, my favorite. But through that, uh, then 12 Monkeys, it just became like, a, oh, uh, this guy, you know, I also directed Time Bandits. And I sort of started seeking out his movies. So these are the first, I guess for me, Terry Gilliam is the director that I, when, you know, like a, if you have a favorite author or favorite director, he's the one that I, my first. Cool. You always remember your first. Yeah. Well, what about you, Faith? Well, um, I'm a big fan of 12 Monkeys. I've probably seen it three or four times. And I've seen Fear and Loathing. Sorry, Josh, it's not my favorite movie, either by him or in general. But yeah, I guess that's kind of why it's sort of surprising that I haven't seen Brazil, because I think his general aesthetic is something that I enjoy. Um, I always liked his parts of Monty Python, even though I think they're probably the weirdest bits of the show. Yeah. And yeah, I just like weird artsy stuff. So I'm I have high expectations for this movie. Right on. I'm kind of on the same level as you, Faith, where I like well, I don't think I'm as big a fan of Terry Gilliam as you, but I've seen several of his other films and we'll dive into that more a little later. But I do like him. I like his aesthetic. I think he's a good director. And like I said, I've always wanted to see this film. So I'm glad I'm catching up with it. And I can finally get you to stop yelling at me for not having seen it. Yeah, I text you every day. God, it's so weird. No one else texts me every single day about not having seen one obscure movie. Every day, all caps, have you seen Brazil yet? Even even today. I feel like it's one of those movies that people who have seen this movie or do like this movie, it's one of their favorite movies. Like I've mentioned to a couple people that I was doing this movie on the podcast and they were either like, oh my God, I love that movie or it's my partner's favorite movie. I think- for people who connect with it, they really connect with it. And I guess it wasn't fair of me to call it obscure. It's just I, I think we're definitely on the uh, cult end of the spectrum for this one. It's a niche movie where those people who've seen it are all about it. When I was introduced to it in college, I bought it on DVD. And at the time, I would have considered not only it obscure, but many of the actors in it obscure. Now, Less so. 12 years later, I'm like, oh, all of these people, like, I mean, which I won't reveal anything, but it was not a movie that had a lot of star power behind it. And there's a lengthy history about its U.S. release, which we'll get into. Oh, yes, I, we will. I know none of those details. Oh, yeah. I only know that Terry Gilliam has not had um, a great history with getting his films released either as he wanted them or at all. Nope. Is he, like, difficult to work with? I don't know. I don't know that. He, Maybe Josh can fill He was famously declared in Hollywood a, one, like, a problem director. Mm. Not be, well, so again, I don't want to give anything away, but in the, at the, not so much pre-Brazil, but in the several movies that followed. And then there's the famous story about the Don Quixote The movie. Don Quixote movie, which is finally, finally spoiler, coming, coming out. out. And also just so apropos. Yeah. Anyway. So that's all stuff I think we can get into yeah, when well, we talk about him in the second half. But I, but yeah, this uh, this is a, he has a reputation. And 
he has this weird reputation where studios have not wanted to work with him, but talent has. Uh, some of the more recent things he did that were successful, successfully launched were like the Bro- Brothers Grimm is Matt Damon and Heath Ledger. And Heath Ledger came back to work with him on the Imaginarium with Dr. Parnassus. Johnny Depp loves him. So he is like an actor's director, but studios have lots of issues with him. Let's um start talking about our expectations for this movie, though. So, Faith, I'll start with you. We already know who directed it. Who do you think is in this movie? Do you have any any ideas? I actually have no idea what actors are in it. I feel like it's one of those things where maybe I've heard their names mentioned in connection with the movie, but either forgot or those actors didn't resonate with me to remember. I guess in terms of characters, I'm going to predict that uh, there is a central dude. Mm-hmm. Um, who maybe good, has good who maybe has a journey? Maybe he comes from uh, a place into a new world or universe and is a bit of a fish out of water, experiencing this for the first time. Interesting. So he finds himself maybe in like a heightened, more magical realm of some kind. Yeah, I mean, I think my understanding of the movie is it's like sci-fi slash fantasy. Okay. So I'm predicting there's a lot of crazy world building in the science fiction fantasy genre. But one of the things I think, you know, they say about science fiction is that it usually reflects the time in which it was written or made. And so because it's in the 80s, I'm predicting there's a lot of kind of metaphors to this world with the world of the 80s, maybe stuff about business or corporations, but through a very like magical fantasy lens. Got it. Cool. Uh, for me, uh, starting with actors, I only know one actor who's in this movie, and that's Jonathan Price. Um, I am 100% sure that he is in this. I don't know anyone else who's in this movie, or at least I didn't. Just to mention it again, uh, I do do research on these before I record the podcast, but I write my predictions down before the research. So this is what I had before I knew more. I think it'd be interesting if you guys could each just throw out three actor or actress guesses. Well, I can't guess anymore because now I've done the research. Faith? Three? Three. Um, Can I just guess Donald Sutherland? That's a good guess. That's the only other character. Jonathan Price and Donald Sutherland. That's the, I think it's a Jonathan two- Price is cheating. That was mine. It's a two-hander. It wasn't yours because, wait, you're saying you wrote that down before you did your research? Right. My When I do my predictions, I write down all my, pre- when, it, when it's me not having seen the film, I'll write down all my predictions and then I'll do the background research. I predict there is a woman in this who uh, stopped being cast after she hit uh, 40. <laughs> <laughs> i gotta say I, jonathan price is exactly who i was thinking of when i said there were people in this who i did not know have any idea who they were when i saw it in college and now jonathan price pops up in anything and i'm like oh my god that's jonathan price oh, i think that's fair so you're confirming that jonathan price is indeed i can in this. confirm the, your expectation that he's in this which you confirmed yourself by doing research after you made your guess yeah but not on the podcast josh spoilers i don't i'm so confused this has become a terry gilliam level of confusion over how your process works how apropos jp Mm. is really having a moment i have to say hi sparrow baby yeah he was so good he is also in he also took over the quixote part in lost in la mancha uh, and he collaborated with gilliam a few other times after this so faith any other predictions about this film so i predict that like 
it's going to be a lot of non-CGI effects, like the okay. world building or like the the physical effects are going to be really cool looking. I think the music's going to be really weird and okay. funky. Yeah. The set, the soundscape I think is going to be is going to be fun. Because, you know, Gilliam was like started in animation, so I think he has this creative mind that we see in a lot of his movies, but particularly if it's like a lot of fantasy, he can kind of go wild. Oh yeah, especially when he has full control over what he's doing. My prediction was that so I usually hear when people talk about this movie, I often hear them say they bring up 1984, the George Orwell story, 1984. So I am guessing that there's going to be some kind of totalitarian government. And I also think, given the movie's reputation, some kind of Kafka-esque bureaucracy. So I think Jonathan Price will be our main guy. And he's going to be some kind of hapless everyman who then has to deal for whatever reason with this ridiculous bureaucracy that's kind of sinister, but also maybe a little less sinister for being ridiculous in that Terry Gilliam kind of way, but still bad. You know, I don't know if I'm making sense, but it's it's inherently sinister but in the maybe the aesthetic of it and the way it does it's very like goofy yeah i feel like there's i'm not going to be scared or disturbed necessarily um partly because of the time in which it was made i think it's a little bit harder with the types of effects um to scare the viewer in this type of film but i think i'm going to be sometimes confused and try to figure out like oh what's going on with this world right there i also think it'll be a little confusing and a little loose but i think that's related to it being terry gilliam too where the story might be a little a little loose in how tightly it's put together right like the most common adjective i hear people describe with this movie even if they like it is weird yeah yeah i have a question though go ahead just to say if i'm gonna throw out a few other terry gilliam movies and you guys just say whether you've seen them or not all right have you seen time bandits no no the fisher king yes no Baron Munchausen. No. Yes. Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Uh, I've not seen that. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Because it's like there's a palette of... That's the other thing is, you know, his whole aesthetic is plays... It, this is this is just an interesting one because this is one of his earlier movies. So I'm interested to see what, what your guys' reaction to it is. Well, you know, as I guess I just showed, I've seen a bunch of his other work. So I think this will... Be in line with that. I agree with you, Faith. I think this will have a lot of practical effects that I, I was thinking something kind of, I don't, I don't want to say steampunk, but maybe cyberpunk, just sort of like a, a funky, uh, practical, physical aesthetic to, you know, the Terry Gilliam look. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking like Blade Runner, but not so high tech. I'm, I'm thinking more like the, the future scenes in 12 Monkeys. Sure, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, because this is Terry Gilliam and like with movies like 12 Monkeys, I think the hero is going to lose at the end. I think his movies usually have it. That's not what happens at the end of 12 Monkeys. Guys, spoiler alert. Dave, you're doing 12 Monkeys on the podcast in a few weeks, right? Uh, yeah. <sighs> well, anyway. Well, I guess we, now is not the time to get into it, but Dave, no, have, Dave and I have a long-standing disagreement about the end of that movie. I, I feel like there's going to be some futility with fighting against whatever okay. 
machine. I also, it, it checks out your prediction, Dave, about the, um, the sort of big brother aspect. And I think it's going to kind of be a fight that ends up not mattering in the grand scheme of things. Mm. Yeah. But um, it's really hard because right now I'm just sitting here like really almost boiling over with all the things I want to say about this movie. Not yet. I know. At the same time, it has been a few years. I I watched this movie, I think, one or two times a year from age 21 to 30. And the last three years, I haven't watched it at all. So it's not necessarily like going back and rewatching it with years in between. But I am interested to sit down and critically look at this with two friends and say, is this the really as good as I thought it was? Mm-hmm. Because I will spoiler, I am a I am a super fan of it, and I'm a little bit nervous that you guys are not gonna. I'm I'm nervous to you know for it to not. To, it's like I'm showing you guys. I feel like yeah, there's like a lot of ownership of. I'm invested in you guys enjoying this. Well, Josh, we also oh. think your baby is really ugly. <sighs> it is though. And you're really ugly. No, I'm just kidding. Well, that's why the baby's really ugly, Dave. Oh, Josh, you're a beautiful man. But uh, following up on what you were just saying there, Josh, Faith, um, what are your expectations for how much you're going to enjoy this film? Like, has it been built up for you? Are you expecting it to be good? I think it has been built up, and part of it is not necessarily other people building it, but me liking weird movies and thinking that I'm really going to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my expectations are fairly high i'm a little more ambivalent i tend to like terry gilliam movies but um i feel like i tend to not like them as much as other people do people i know who are fans of either terry gilliam or specific terry gilliam films are really really big fans of them and i usually tend to like them but not love them so you know everyone's always telling me that this movie is an a and i usually come out of it more like that was a b you know i liked it but it was just pretty good who are you talking about dave (laughs) i think he's doing a character from the film now that's probably Jonathan Price's character. That seems like something he'd play, right? Yeah, definitely. Get ready for two hours and 40 minutes of that. Ugh. Well, uh, one last question I want to ask you, Faith. Why do you think the movie is called Brazil? Ooh, that is a great question, and I feel like it's something I've asked myself. Um, it could be something about, you know, a sort of a Planet of the Apes scenario where we're like in um, a world that is somehow associated with Brazil in a way that is revealed later on. Okay. For me, my thinking, I said that I think there's going to be a 1984 totalitarian government aspect to this. I think this takes place in a world where there's a one world government. And so the movie actually takes place in Brazil, but because the whole world has been conquered by this uh, big brother esque government uh that's why everyone in brazil is going to wind up being white and british yeah i was gonna say how many people of color do we think are going to be i don't think there's going to be any parts i don't think there's going to be any actual brazilians in this movie it's they'll all have been killed in whatever war that uh you know this like blobby american england kind of vague government has enacted to conquer the world and that's why jonathan price is a brazilian um, I would like to predict that this movie barely passes the Bechdel test only because uh, the female 
heroine or love interest has a conversation with some other lady about the world or the government. Okay, I'm gonna take it further. I'm gonna I'm gonna guess there's only one female character who speaks in this movie. I think the other female character is someone who probably has like three lines. Okay, all right. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's just really fun being on. I I'm I know the answers. I know the answers to everything. You're not getting it. That's oh. my walk-in. I guess he's in this film as well. Stop yeah, giving it away, Josh. Could he? With your incredible, your incredible impressions. That came out, that, I used to do that a lot in college. and uh, uh, Everyone used to do that a lot in college. Everyone does it all the time. Still, I think. Uh, but I will say, uh, I don't, that just kind of came out. Well, I think... We're all set with our predictions. Any less thoughts before we watch Brazil? Well, Dave, I think you should take us out on the Brazil theme song. Oh, that's right. It goes a little something like this. Brazil, it's the best country in the world and still. You can drink a lot of wine or some swill. Because we're here in the world called Brazil. Brazil! Sorry for making you hear me sing. That was my cowbell. Let's watch Brazil. Do you wake from your finest fantasy only to return to your daily nightmare? Is your mother about to look younger than you do? Does the woman of your dreams I love you. In my dreams, I love you. Still have a few doubts? Then it's time to take a stand. To break out of your dull, humdrum life and into Brazil. You're so pleased. You can make it right this way. It's about rights of fantasy and the nightmare of reality. We're all in this together. Terrorist bombing. I don't think it involves anything unsavory. Hey, trust me, Jack. And late night shopping. True love. You don't trust me? Trust you? Trust you? The man who hijacks my truck, loses me my job, has every security man in town looking for me? Of course I trust you. I was only trying to help. Yeah. And creative plumbing. There's a problem. Can you fix it? No, I can't. From Terry Gilliam, director of Time Bandits, Jonathan Price. Sam. What are we going to do with you? Robert De Niro. I came into this game for the action, the excitement. Go anywhere, travel light, get in, get out, wherever there's trouble, a man alone. Catherine Hellman and Michael Palin. We've always been close, haven't we? Yes, Jack. But until this all blows over, just stay away from me. Brazil, it's only a state of mind. We're all in it together, kid. Brazil. You know, my song was actually pretty close.
Dave, I think we nailed that one. Oh my god, I actually kind of got it. Yeah, it was hard not to... I kept humming it after you sang that, and we were before we started the movie, I was humming it to myself and trying to make sure I was humming it inaudibly, not to give away that it was about to come up on screen. Can we all agree that that's the best part of the movie, that song? The music? That song in particular? I mean, the only song in that society. That's right, they're singing it. Yeah. So, uh, what did we think of that? Oh, is this me? Josh, what did you think of Brazil? I am going to say... Wait, before you go, I just want (laughs) to... This always happens! Every time! Every time! Uh, I think I should just uh, mention, so there's multiple cuts of this movie. Uh, The cut we watched was the two hour and 12 minutes. I think this was for American audiences cut. It's a little shorter than the the longer cut that was released in Europe anyway. Here's what, yeah, I'm glad I was here because I will say that- Uh, Hold on one second. God damn it. (laughs) No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I enjoyed uh, my rewatch. It's been a a little bit, but there is a a difference, uh, pretty, to me, a pretty significant difference between what we watched and the director's cut of the film. And I don't typically t- uh, tend to be that kind of a snob in terms of director's cut versus what went to theaters. I don't think there are two. I can't think of any other examples that really come to mind. But the version that I have watched, like I said, 15 or 16 times is superior to what we just watched. That being said, what we just watched is pretty much the movie. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Uh, Faith, just quick initial reactions. Well, I had a good time watching it. So I would say initial reaction is really dug the first half. Uh, Loved all that stuff. We'll get into it. But I thought the second half was a little shaggy. I think I'm 100% on board with that. Well, all right. We talked about Terry Gilliam as a director a little bit beforehand. We'll talk about him more. And I think in this go through, we're going to combine that with the background of this film because I think as we know about Terry Gilliam, his uh, productions tend to be disasters. Never, never not drama. Right. And there's a lot of that here. So we'll kind of merge that into talking about him as a director to start with the background of this movie. So Gilliam also said that he was inspired by 1984, the famous George Orwell story. Yeah. But here's the thing. He also said he'd never read it. Well, I don't know. He could have picked up on some things. No, no, this this is... All right, so just to say what is not cutting room floor is he had the Time Bandits idea. He had the idea for a man oppressed by a society. He made Time Bandits. Time Bandits was a huge success. It made like $55 million against a $5 million budget. Damn. And it was a surprise success and no one would invest in it. So he had... You know, studios finally knocking on his door saying, we want to make your next movie because everyone thought, oh, he could get he got a kids market. He got an adult market. He he cracked like the secret. And that is how Brazil came about. But a crazy so Brazil is based on it was another idea that he had at, at the time as time bandits. But what is crazy is uh, critics didn't critics thought this was an adaptation of 1984. It's so similar to 1984 that people who didn't know any better assumed that this was nineteen. This was actually a George Orwell approved property. Hmm. Well, it's like nineteen eighty four with jokes. Yeah, I mean, I liked that. I mean, I wrote down here 
not original question mark but then i wrote except more wacky and fun yeah so that's okay exactly and i think you could also just as easily say that he's pulling from brave new world and all sorts of you know totalitarian fiction yeah it's okay to be inspired by that stuff because it's relevant it has a very good sense of humor and i have to i think that's attributed to tom stoppard and I don't understand, I don't know the history of Tom Stoppard's involvement with this movie. I actually don't have anything about Was that Was he either. involved? Tom Stoppard co-wrote the screenplay. Oh. Hmm. So do you think he wrote the line, suspicion breeds confidence on uh, the poster? Oh, the posters are one of my favorite parts of this movie. And that is very 1984. Of course. I mean, we'll we'll talk about it more with the plot, but like, yeah, the Ministry of Information, all of that shit. There's also this subplot where Ian Holmes' character, Mr. Kurtzman, is obsessed with his co-workers and thinks they're conspiring against him, which is very real Inspector Hound. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did it love is. his character. Well, Okay. We'll talk about the plot in a minute, but to finish up with the uh, the struggles of getting this movie made. Uh, so he makes the movie, right? Uh, the original cut is 142 minutes long and has a, a dark, unhappy ending. Spoiler alert. Uh, and this got released internationally. Then in the United States, it hadn't been released yet and it tested poorly. So the studio wanted to recut it with a happy ending and they actually did. They made a new cut. But uh, Gilliam was like, no fucking way. I don't approve of this at all. So they fought over it for a while. And then the original cut, the European cut that Gilliam liked, wound up winning this uh, big award, uh, Best Picture from the Los Angeles Film Critics Association. And when that happened, Universal was like, all right, fine. Critics like your version. So we'll release your version but we still want you to cut it down a little bit so it was uh, a shorter version finally released in the united well, states one of the things they added a very long fight chase sequence by any chance that's a pretty american thing to do well the thing is uh, all of that was there what they wanted so the the studio's issues and part of the reason the studio was so in uh, aggressive about it was the head of the studio had worked very closely with steven spielberg and had been like had like brought auteur directors to success so he was really convinced they had a good movie that just wasn't there yet he he didn't he wasn't trying to just say i don't get your movie he was genuinely saying i think you have a hit and you don't understand how to make a hit and i and i can help you yeah yeah i can see that um but his biggest issue with it his biggest note was it doesn't it's too inaccessible it's there's it's not clear enough what's this story is not clear enough might have had a bit of a point this kafka-esque story like wasn't speaking to everyone like directly uh and so what the version we saw is terry gilliam he did a compromised edit and that's the version that we watched but the but the head of the studio was like i hate to tell you this this is as inaccessible as it was before and as bleak as it was before, and you've you've really not changed any of the things I, I asked you to change. And Terry Gilliam was like, well, fuck you. That's the part of the movie that is the most important to me. I'll change. He was like ready to, I think, edit out a lot of the earlier sequences and shorten it. But he was not, he would not change the ending. And he would not uh, change the, I guess, sort of the unclearness of what's real and what's not real in the movie, which is kind of a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well... As long as we're on this topic, let's talk about the directing in this film. So we already went over a little bit about who Gilliam is and what we think of him. 
uh, his directing style. So, according to Wikipedia, it is characterized by black comedy, tragicomic elements, and surprise endings, usually sad ones, and a heavy dose of magical realism, things about letting fantasy bleed into an ostensibly real world, and um, he tends to have a very Baroque style in terms of the look of his films, very kind of big and heavy, you know, emphasis on the production design of the sets and everything like that. Um, but not necessarily like the little details of the craft. Right. Well, in the little details, he, he likes to go sort of high tech, but with this low tech in the details look. You know what I mean? He he is obsessed. He is. Uh, there's a famous story that relates more to 12 Monkeys than to this, but he is obsessed with one of the reasons he's considered uh, a a font terrible as a director is he does he will have this five million dollar set you know okay so that's not correct but he'll have a very expensive set and, and then make it look like junk and then make them make the camera zoom in on one element junk element of it and oh, then yeah, make them okay. shoot it over and over again and they're like hey what do you Terry what about a wide shot just to you know show Put them some of the money on screen <laughs> yeah and he's like no it has to be and the shot's not tight enough we need nope it's gotta be smaller smaller and it's like I was thinking about this movie's budget a lot during the film it I see this this to me is one of I have on other uh, podcast gone on and about practical effects and i think this is awesome i think oh, the like, the on that, scenic on that part, yeah. the art direction and the scenic elements and, and and a lot of the funny stuff that like the way that the heating duct and cooling duct uh work kind of pulsates and seems alive or sentient like yeah well, I, I wrote down that i think this society is actually named ventland <laughs> Uh, so, well, seriously, I mean, it's not just that they're alive. It's the fact that these ducks are, like, penetrating every corner. They're everywhere. There's little ones. There's giant ones. There's fancy ones. Behind every wall, there's just, like, an absolute mess of wires and tubes. That's how they communicate, by, like... Pneumatic tube. Yeah. Yeah. But and, and one thing that that reconnects to Gilliam is he was he started as a cartoonist. That's how his career began, pre, pre-film. He, he was a cartoonist. Right. Yeah. And... He got in with the Pythons. He basically he did all of that stop motion himself. He would make he would craft these these sequences. He said he would do two all nighters a week and spend the other you know five days working like twelve hour days. He basically had a drawer full of uh, paintings he'd cut out and things like that. And you sort of see that in his direction. Like we just commented it towards the end of the film, and I won't really give the context because we're not talking plot, but. There's a shot of a of a field that becomes a painting that is then a painting behind two actors, which is a trick he also uses in Twelve Monkeys to great effect, and that kind of classical uh, throwing in a piece of classic artwork or something like that is like I think a throwback to his days as as a, the animator on Python, just grabbing stuff out of a drawer and throwing it under the lens, and that mixed media kind of feel. Well, there were yeah, there were a lot of different looks in this film. Like at one point, you said steampunk. In the beginning days, yeah, or but, cyberpunk, too. cyberpunk. But there was also all these noir elements, you know, mm-hmm. the 1984 kind of 40s vibe with the fascists and Art it, Deco. Yeah, and you're right about the noir too. Like when he's entering some of these buildings with his hat and his coat, like you know, his shadow. Still a hat society. <laughs> yes, very madman. Faith. Normally we keep this for later, but I guess because we're talking production design, do you want to take a stab at the budget? 
Uh, well, I wrote down 30 million here, but I, I feel like it doesn't necessarily look like it's on screen. I just feel mm. like it pushed its budget. And when I say it doesn't look that good, I don't mean that I don't like it. I like practical effects and I liked the kind of rough and ready look of it. Like I think it kind of added for me. There's a grittiness to it. Right. I like, I don't mean it was like laughably bad. I just think it has this element of that movies don't have anymore. Mm. And you know, those old TVs. Yeah. They're everywhere. You but- feel, I do feel like it's got kind of a sound. You feel like this is on a soundstage and that's on a, to me, that's not a bad thing. Like you feel like they're sets. But sure, that's sure. kind of cool because of the grandiosity of some of them. Right, you're taken out. It's not. It's a. It's a supposed to be like the real society of the whole world, but it it is otherworldly too. It's, it's uncanny. Yeah, it's sci-fi. It's whatever. Yeah, it, it's just a little off. It's it's like almost recognizable. I will also say another uh, hallmark of his work. I feel like is he loves putting screens on poles. Screens on poles. Or technology on poles. And And they're always like sticking out on these big poles. And magnifying glasses. People having to look at monitors through magnifying glasses. Like, uh, that's a big, that's a lot of that in 12. You pointed out there's a lot of that in 12 months. Yeah, well, this is not supposed to be the future. So the technology is not supposed to be that much more advanced than ours. It's just supposed to be kind of weird and different. Right. Well, the beginning of the movie says it's sometime and somewhere in the 20th century. So it's supposed to be like almost... It's recognizably our society, but just a little, like, unclear. Right, like, that's again the 1984, like, And also the 40s, 80s, like, when are we? I'd posit a very fresh take that perhaps this movie is trying to tell us that while we have a lot of technology, it's not necessarily making our lives any better. Booyah! Put that on Twitter. No one has said it before. The budget of this movie was $15 million. Oh, shit. Well, maybe that's more accurate See, to how it looked. That is a third of Dune. That is a third of what they spent on Dune. I think he, uh, you know, I, I think he did a good job with that money. I think it looks, that that seems like a reasonable budget to me based on what we saw. I Yeah, I mean, it seems like a big budget for the 80s, but. True, I guess. He, again, he had just come off the heels of a, a, a so the one one important part about thing about this movie is like, he was a no-name director who was given fifteen million dollars, which is a big, which is like you know, basically they teed him up, uh, hoping he would repeat uh, Time Bandit success. Yeah, what what did this come? This did not do well, right? It it couldn't have been a success. No, it made nine point nine million dollars. Yikes! That's actually better than I expected yeah. you to say. But it's gone on to have a pretty, you know. It, it, it's a well thought of film since then. I don't know if that a cult favorite, if you will. Indeed, yes. I can see it being a a darling of the critics movie, but not you know a popular yeah, movie. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Yeah, I don't think the word of mouth from like random people who saw this movie who weren't into artsy stuff would have carried it very far. Yeah, it certainly doesn't result in a lot of uh, money anyway. But um, to to finish off on his style, uh, bait similar to what we were just discussing, a lot of people refer to the style that he brings to this movie in particular as retrofuturism, mm-hmm. um, which I think you know it's it's like what we were saying. It's it's what someone from the eighties would think the future was like if it was mixed with the forties. Yeah. Um, can I say a couple other things about his direction? Please do. Well, a couple things I liked were when he had those weird kind of unconventional shots, like right at the beginning with the fly. I thought that scene was shot super interesting. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the scene where it shows him seeing the girl in the broken mirror. Like it's not the first time he's seen. He sees oh, yeah, her first yeah. in like glimpses. Like that's on, the first time on the in the camera. real world. First time in the real world. So yeah. there's like a mirror that's broken, and he sees a reflection from her, but she's actually in the um, floor above, and he's seeing her through a broken like a hole. So I liked I liked those kinds of shots. I almost wish there had been more of that. And then I thought that the directing as the movie went on, especially during the fight chase sequence that lasted about 20 minutes uh, in the last third. That part was poorly done, I think. I, yeah, it didn't grab me and it, I was I got a little bored. See, that's where I want to jump in and say that I believe, if memory serves right, was a casualty of the re-edit. There's I, it, a lot it of, felt like that way. There's mm-hmm. a lot about the last mm-hmm. third that you guys have hit a pod that is correct. It is the weak, by far the weakest part of this movie. Besides this movie, there are a bunch of other productions he's known for having disasters on. Most notoriously and weirdly appropriately, his attempt to make the Don Quixote movie has been... uh, If you don't know about this, you should look it up on your own because the sheer number of mishaps and misfortunes that that production has suffered over the course of decades at this point is kind of horrifying but hilarious and how intense it is there's just so many things and so many different kinds of problems he ran into and then it to the point where there's a documentary about his failed attempts to make this movie well what's really wonderful about that and the shows the beauty of documentaries is they were just there to film a behind the scenes of this movie and the movie ended up being such a disaster that the documentary became for you know 20 years the only the the documentary was the movie that's the same thing that happened with apocalypse i was just thinking that yeah besides that uh baron munchausen had terrible budget problems he went way over budget on that he's tried making a tale of two cities and failed he tried making watchmen the adaptation of that graphic novel he tried making that twice He's tried making good omens and failed. And then uh, famously uh, with the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, Heath Ledger passed away during the creating of that movie. And I'm, Yeah, it's a question like, is he having bad luck or is there something else going on with the way he works? I he's, think it's got to be some of both, right? He's a super, he comes across as a super intense guy. And uh, in recent years, a bit of a horse's ass. Uh, it feels like he's both unlucky and also can't rein in his ambitions. Yeah, and well, there's a big thing about how the Pythons were, the Pythons fought with the BBC a lot, and they also fought with American studios a lot once the material came over here. So he was sort of uh, cut his teeth in an environment of uncompromising artistic vision that has carried into his career. He thought of himself as a rebel. Yeah. Let's talk about the cast a little bit. We start with uh, Jonathan Price. Yes, he is in this movie. Yes. And he's great. I love him. Jonathan Price has described this role as the highlight of his career. And I can totally see that, although he said that before appearing as the High Sparrow on Game of Thrones, which I know it's a small part, but I thought he was so good in that. He has to reconsider now that he's done that part. Yeah, well, I think he's getting a lot more opportunities, too, and he's having a bit of a purple patch in his later years. Rightly so. Just to toss one other thing out there, they also considered Tom Cruise for the part. Oh, oh my god, that would have been god. weird. I think I think Lowry was like uh, Sam Lowry is just not Tom Cruise. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. No, yeah. I think Jonathan Price did an amazing job, and I I can see it being a really fun role to play. Oh yeah, and he he is an everyman as I predicted. 
Uh, but Jonathan Price is so much more an everyman than Tom Cruise. He's also got the terrific combination of expressive eyes and a face that uh, reads emotion very well. But also he can do he can do hot like when he was in his uh, like uh, flying suit with the hair and the oh, yeah. armor. I was pretty into that hair and some big sort of cartoonish Bugs Bunny humor, like when he freaks out on the male thing in the in the in his, and he's like, "Gotcha!" Oh yeah, he does like a Woody Woodpecker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and also him hanging onto the front of Jill's truck. Yeah. That's... Yeah, he had some time to do some moments. I mean, sometimes he was a bit of a dweeb, but like, you know, he got he had some range in the film. Totally, totally. Speaking of Jill, we've got Kim Greist as Jill Layton. Love. Really? I was a big fan. I mean, for most of it. A couple scenes I was like, um, but I thought, you know, her introduction, like her scenes when she first meets Jonathan Price's character, Lowry, um, she's kick-ass. She's badass. Yeah, I loved her. I thought she was all right. I don't think she was amazing or anything. You know who didn't like her performance, though? Critics? Terry Gilliam. He uh, apparently was not very satisfied with it and cut or edited out or around a lot of her scenes because he just didn't like the job she did. I mean, I'm not necessarily saying I loved the actress. I don't... She was... The actress was okay. I just really liked the character. I think I would agree with that. Yeah. I liked her hair. Interesting. Do you have anything specific about what he didn't like about it? Nope weird yeah i don't know i mean it's kind of weird because for a lot of the movie she's you only see her in these dream sequences as this sort of you know otherworldly beautiful woman and then you get her as this gritty you know uh truck driver so i sort of like the look of her the real world her more than the actual character as she's embodied like she looks great with the the short hair and the leather jacket and the the coverall she just sort of looks right for the part mm-hmm. but the actual performance I thought was just kind of meh. Yeah, uh, that's fair. Robert De Niro is in this movie. Love. Harry Tuttle. Which was, one? Yeah, sorry. He was great. It's I, one of my favorite movie cameos. I, I would agree with that. I thought his character was fucking awesome. I really was like hoping that um, Jill was going to go off with Harry. It would have been much more glorious, wouldn't it? Definitely. He's this, this Spider-Man heat engineer it's so cool he just he swoops in and fixes stuff and then gets away yeah and the this is at a time where de niro was now we know de niro from the meet the parents movies and things like that but in the 80s it was like taxi driver raging bull oh yeah and i'm also harry chuttle the traveling yeah he engineer i uh what a great came out so he uh wanted to be in this movie he wanted to play jack lint the michael palin part Mm. but um Mm. gilliam had promised the part to michael palin so he gave de niro this other part instead i mean even if it like wasn't like doing a buddy a favor i think michael palin is just perfect oh yeah he's great i I don't have anything else to say about his performance he's such a nice guy like in his persona that the fact he's playing you know this banality of evil character like english perfectly public put, school yeah. traditional guy but involved in this crazy machine and like the, the the things he's like the you're right about the banality of evil part where he's just he's got his daughter with him at work as a torturer and like when jonathan price is like please don't do this i'm so scared and his response is well how do you think i feel yeah he's true ter- and his wordplay is terrific like so he has that great he has a couple great exchanges with jonathan price yeah just a few other people i want to call out uh, for being his movie. One is Catherine Helmond as the mom. R.I.P. R.I.P. Yeah. too soon. Yeah, she just passed away, so I want to call her out. I remember her. She's Mona from Who's the Boss. 
She, yeah, and she's also a Terry Gilliam doesn't necessarily have like a a repert, uh, you know, recurring characters, but she's in Fear and Loathing, and I think she's also in The Fisher King. She's in a oh, she's cool. in a few of his movies. I think she really heightened the scenes that she were in. They really like sparked, and I think a lot of that is her energy, like bouncing off Jonathan Price's. They were really having a good time together. Yeah, no, she was good. She was good. Also, excellent chemistry with Jim Broadbent. So Jim Broadbent is in this movie. Yes, I love seeing him. Young Jim Broadbent. Well, is he young? He must have been. He was young, but he looks old. Yeah, that's that's Jim Broadbent for you. He's timeless. Ian Holm is also in this movie. Bilbo himself. Quite possibly my favorite part. Yeah, he's fantastic. In the whole movie? I love Mr. Kurtz. I think it's he's so, so fun. funny. Th- just those scenes too. Uh, the, the, whole, the whole office. The whole office is so great. Yeah, that's kind of, that's my favorite part of the movie. I do love how low self-esteem he is, where he's like, <laughs> I suck. I'm such a piece of shit. <laughs> like, what would I do without you? I can't do anything. Yeah, he's a little bit in love with uh, Lowry. Oh my God, it's so funny. Ah, uh, yeah. Lastly, Bob Hoskins. Oh, yeah. As Spoor, the repair guy. So is he basically just playing Mario Mario in this movie? Well, he hadn't done the Mario Brothers yet. That I don't think that comes till 1992 or 3. Oh, That's yeah. what they based it on, Dave. Yeah. It certainly seems like it. the aesthetic of the Mario movie is so heavily influenced by this. It has to be. It's interesting how intimidating a thug uh, old Bob Hoskins, you know, was. He, he was. He's legitimately, you know, unnerving when yeah. he's in close quarters with Sam. And there's something so British about him. Um, I don't know the actor's name, but also his partner in those scenes. Uh, just talk again, talk about great chemistry. Those two guys are awesome. Well, he's such a Luigi. Yeah. Oh, God. It's all right. Let's talk about the plot, shall we? Wait, do we skip anyone? Is there no? Is there anyone else worth talking about? Of, uh, you tell me. Note? That's all I put down. Well, the gentleman who plays Mr. Heldman, I think, is pretty great, too. And we we pulled him out. Oh, that's right. Uh, Faith, you looked it up. He's the guy who plays Eamon Targaryen, the uh, Night's Watch maester. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, Patrick Vaughn. He seems so old, even in this movie, and that's, like, more than 30 years ago. Well, he's positively ancient on Game of Thrones. That's true. But this is part of the reason I was nearly boiling over in the first half, because I I wanted you guys, I was like, you gotta guess some more people because there's so many people in this movie that you could throw a dart at a board and probably get one of them correct just start naming british people yeah i'm not very good with that faces and i know like i've seen them in a thousand things but i can't always pull it mm. i mean i i normally would take more shots but other than jonathan price i just had no ideas you know yeah and when i again when i saw this when i was 20 ian holm didn't you know i i know i knew him like ian holm from this. i should have guessed ian holm because he's in everything yeah his his filmography is he, like a mile long. He, he and Jim Broadbent have snuck into basically most popular British things. We start in some vague, somewhere in the 20th century. It turns out it is not necessarily Brazil. No. The country. No, in fact, the word Brazil is never mentioned other than in song. Yeah, that's too bad. That was a correct prediction. Well, I was wrong. I thought it would be in Brazil. No, but I think Faith said, if not on the pod, but just before we watched it, I bet that the word Brazil is never said. Yeah. I think we crushed it with the song and that and that word prediction. That's that's totally true. I think I also pretty much nailed it with my prediction of how the whole universe was this insane, sinister, but also kind of ridiculous bureaucracy government. Yeah, that was pretty... Uh, I feel like I hit that. Yeah. yeah. It, it's a pretty fantastic opening because it starts... In what is that in me in media res? Yeah, and then we get the title, 
we get the we get the we get the song and then the title and then it and then we start the movie with um the commercial for the ducks yeah and you think that's ducks not the bird you're you're watching uh an advert for ducks that then pulls back to reveal it's a storefront of tvs all playing the same advertisement that then gets blown up by a terrorist bomb and then you go to the same channel in a in a different in a house in an apartment and they're watching the same uh feed i mean it's like well it's a, it's a commercial from very 1984 the ministry of information mm-hmm. and it is also pretty 1984 that the head of that ministry is named mr helpman mhm helpman mhm yeah uh, and so the first scene is this family, this innocent family in a shitty apartment. It's dark. Uh, so all the places that people live, even the nice ones. I hate to stop you, but incorrect. We've we've jumped past the whole inciting sin of the movie, which is the fly. Oh, I'm sorry. You, you, why don't you take us so to that? So we go storefront TVs, then the ad, which is still playing in some of the TVs, even though the storefront has exploded, goes to an interview with the Ministry of Information's deputy, I think. We cut to a man who's watching this on a small TV in his office that has a problem with a fly, and he is trying to kill it, which is this very interesting sequence where, because you can tell that the fly is un, unusually large, so they could actually, like, it's a... Yeah, it's big and gross. And gross. He th- thumps it, it falls into a printer, and accidentally alters what the printer, so the printer is printing what we don't really know is yet, but is a warrant for a man's arrest, and it changes his last name from Tuttle to Buttle. Right, and so we have this situation where the entire plot of this movie is kicked off by a fly. Which I thought, like, that was starting off with, like, a misunderstanding, and that kicks off everything, I thought that's a brilliant detail. I liked it, too. Then we jump into an apartment where the same interview is being broadcast and a family is not watching the TV, but the mother of the family is finishing a Christmas carol. Right. So it's Christmas. We see some crappy Christmas trees all throughout. No sooner does she finish it, but then shit goes down in the apartment. Right. Because this is the Buttle family and their terrible, dank, poorly lit apartment. Britain will never give up Christmas, even like in an alternate universe. They love it there. There's no war on Christmas in Britain. Nope. It did make me think, though... I've heard this this whole argument about people not saying Merry Christmas. They don't say they didn't say Merry Christmas in the UK. They say Happy Christmas. And this was like insane people. Well, I'm just wondering. So was it was there a time in America where we didn't say Merry Christmas and we said Happy Christmas? I mean, because we got all our culture originally from them. Dude, I'm Jewish. I don't. I don't fucking know. Uh, well, in the Christmas Carol, don't they say Merry Christmas in the Charles Dickens version? I haven't read it. You haven't read it? Well, it's also, there are many versions on screen, including the Muppets Christmas Carol. Well, I've so, seen that. I mean, that's very accurate. My favorite is the CGI Jim Carrey Christmas Carol. Oh, fuck off. Anyway, so <laughs> the Buttle family, again, in a very 1984-ish way, is attacked by these police people. Also very Brave New World. They come bursting through their ceiling and through their front door. It's actually pretty scary. And they they literally bag up Mr. Buttle and 
then we start getting our bureaucracy where they present the wife with a receipt for the kidnapping of her husband and then the dude takes a receipt for her receipt right like she's freaking out but then when she gets the form she just like her face like becomes oh i need to sign this form and then she gives it back and then her face is like freaking out again yeah it's just like a brief interlude for signing something it's hilarious well it's the idea it's like something normal that's something she can her mentally cling to in a horrifying scene a way to bring it down josh I that's the world we live in, man. It's not I what I I'm gonna say I love this movie because I, I'm definitely of the, the weird paranoid type that thinks that's where we're headed. That we're like not that far away no, from. No, I was thinking that holes too. come being you know drilled into our ceilings because of what we tweeted about. You know, if anything, it just becomes more relevant. We're like going full cycle from like the fascism of the 40s back into the fascism of like like the 2010s. Yeah, yay! So yes, there's a huge arrest. It's quite scary, and then we inexplicably cut to a dream sequence. Yeah, you had a problem with that? No, the dream I didn't have a problem with that because that's that's how the mo- so the movie uh the original idea for the movie was Gilliam had was that this guy has these elaborate dreams where he's like a superhero and then he has to you know grapple, live up to them. Grapple that with it like, you know, deal with having those dreams and living his horribly mundane life. Yeah. And so the dream sequences were always like that was and so that became that was the basis for the screenplay. What my issue is, it comes later in the plot. But this the dream sequences that we were introduced to, I assume the studio had issues with because they're bizarre. You have no context for what's happening. Well, I mean, they're clearly dream sequences. I mean, there's a lot of them, though. There are or they're very long. Yeah, agreed. And well, so just to describe them, we have Jonathan. We're finally introduced to Jonathan Price, who Faith Sorry is actually part of this world. He doesn't go on a magical journey to discover a, a fairy tale That's realm. True. Well, there was fantasy elements, but I kind of wasn't true. sure how they were going to fit in. He does go on a magical journey to discover himself. Hey, uh, but before he does that, he has a dream where he's like an angel guardian of this girl he keeps dreaming about. And keeps having to, like, fight off all these horrible monsters to try and save her. Yes. And so Sam wakes up in a cold sweat because he's Sam Lowry, Jonathan Price. Yes, Jonathan Price character Sam Lowry wakes up from uh, this stream and is late for work. Which, uh, we're not really telling it in shot for shot order, but basically uh, his alarm clock is messed up. And it's this environment where your alarm clock is connected to your entire house. Well, everything's interconnected. And also everything is constantly like on the fritz or broken mm-hmm. or shitty. I think that's a pretty consistent with Gilliam's aesthetic is that everything's advanced, but also like a piece of shit. Yeah, that's why I liked those details too. Like everything's paperwork and everything's always breaking down. Like yeah. that's the essence of the society. Everyone just accepts it. Also, his his whole apartment is so pointlessly automated yeah, like everything's automatic, but what? Like even the the plug in his tub, it, it like comes down automatically. It's like who? Why do you have that automated? Yeah, his coffee maker pours it on his toast. Yeah. Yes, that's one of my favorite details is that the coffee maker pours the coffee on the toast, and so then when he he he's not looking at it, he puts sugar in an empty cup and tries to drink it, and it's gross. And then he tries to eat the toast, and it keeps flopping away from his mouth. No and one he likes it away. No one likes floppy toast. Yeah, no. What's the point? It's that attention to detail that I you give I give Terry Gilliam a hand, you know credit for. I mean I think that's why you come to this movie. I think this movie is 
selling the best. And there was so much more of that in the first half or the first two thirds. Yes. Yeah. Uh, agreed. I think, you know, we'll we'll go through the plot, but there's actually very little plot to this movie. Everything is sort of about the details of the places and the interactions and like sitting in these scenes and sort of like marinating in them a little bit. Yeah, well, that's why I think when it, the stakes do get bigger and when the picture gets bigger, the movie is actually weaker. Yeah, it loses something. Like when there are smaller stakes or just more personal stakes, these individual people's lives and how they're affected by this bureaucracy, that's when it's really you know, connects with you as a viewer. Yeah, when they have the time to actually, like, observe these little Like, this is how it's affecting, people, like, yeah. real people, not like, we need to bring down the whole society. Yeah, I agree. Well, you get this, yeah, and you get the beauty of that in Mr. Kurtzman, who's Sam Lowry's boss, played by Ian Holm, and, and the issue of the last name and them having abducted the wrong person means that Sam and Mr. Kurtzman, and they work in the Department of Records, are in trouble. This means that Somewhere in the in their bureaucratic landscape, there's been a mistake, and mistakes are both horrible to admit and nearly impossible to address. Of course, because it's a horrible bureaucracy. Yeah, I mean, just continues to go back to the idea that it's it's really hilarious that everything goes off the rails because of a typo. Yeah, well, it makes sense just given the world that he's built. So, uh, Jonathan Price works at the ministry, and it's exactly what we predicted: this Kafkaesque nightmare. And the entire plot is just revolving around trying to fix this goddamn typo. It also has just can't and find fix. true love. Well, yeah, but that the uh, the office is one of my I think the most impressive shot of the movie, which is the dolly shot with all through the, the whole office. Yes, yeah. yeah, that's cool. Reminded me of the Hudsucker proxy. Yeah, and they also either hired actors and then made them up to look like clones of each other they all looked exactly the same i was thinking that too yeah it's really fantastic they all have this very generic white guy look to them uh-huh yep no people of color in this film They're no not. no 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 americans and brits diverse in the in the sense that it has americans and brits but uh, there were a fair number of women though did they wind up speaking to each other i i forgot to keep track of that i think we said that uh the uh mom and her friend and the friend's daughter talked about the menu okay uh when they had lunch that right. was the only time, I believe. But a man was present, so maybe it squeaks by, but I think I would say it doesn't really pass the Yeah, if it test. does, it passes on a technicality. I was going to say, it, I don't think it does. I mean, I don't know, but I would say probably doesn't. It's weird, too, because the real inner struggle for Sam is whether to relish in his mundane, innocuous off-the-grid lifestyle or to embrace this promotion well at first he doesn't want the promotion because right. he's happy where he is right well if he strives for something else it's not striving for power and like status it's striving for you know this kind of fantasy where there's like love or there's he's a hero but in a kind of rebellious way hmm. yeah there's an hmm. awesome exchange between where michael palin's character is encouraging him to take a promotion or to move up and he's like you're stuck in records it's boring impossible to get noticed the same thing every day and he's like yeah it's perfect i mean i think that was one of the most pleasant surprises for me about this movie it was hilarious like i guess because i was i've really only seen a few terry gilliam movies i was thinking it was going to be more like 12 monkeys which is not as funny right and this movie was so funny it I, is really, I dug really it. funny yeah there's a great line in that michael palin jonathan price exchange where jonathan price is like give my love to the twins oh they're triplets actually oh triplets how time flies totally 
it's they really worked well line. together, Price and Palin. Oh yeah, my God, not a lot of scenes, but they were great. Yeah. So anyway, uh, it turns out this promotion is because Jonathan Price's mother is someone with a fair amount of influence, and she's pulling strings for him, and she's getting her own strings pulled. Heyo, <laughs> at the plastic surgeon that scene was so great so weird yeah her face is being stretched out and this reminded me so much of a uh a doctor who episode do you guys watch that show you said that i had no idea what you were referencing. no neither do i i was thinking actually a lot of the scenes of like the rich um like fancy people was very hunger games of course, oh that- totally yeah like so you could see some influences here like harry potter hunger games those kind mm. of Mm-hmm. bureaucracy uh, the apparatus on her face was also a little bit clockwork orange mm. what's yeah. bizarre is do you think do people still do that i know that people do Get things plastic like surgery yes. yeah like people do like botox there's well one thing that's come back around is all these weird alternative treatments like rich people are always doing very weird like skin like hot and cold and all sorts of like treatments that aren't necessarily like snipping and sewing foreskin rub foreskin rub that's just your thing dave well, what? speaking only for myself, there's some kind of health scam that was going around that was like they made a uh, a face mask out of like ground up foreskins and you put it on your face and it's supposedly very rejuvenating. Yikes. I prefer snail slime myself. Oh yeah, snail slime's another one. I've been told I need to exfoliate. Is that that? Yes. Yep. Just put some foreskin on your face. You'll be all set. You look Yo. like a new man. Do you Literally. Need some foreskin. <laughs> So, all right. So because Jonathan Price is now interested in trying to resolve this issue with this false arrest, he actually has a reason to get out of his comfortable little world and start exploring the world around him. First, though, he does go to this restaurant where he meets his mother, his mother's friend, and then the mother's friend's daughter, Shirley. There's a bit of a thing there where the the mother and the friend are trying to set him up with Shirley and at first, uh, it made me really sad because Shirley just seemed like this poor, in- painfully shy girl who's like clearly going to get rejected by Jonathan Price because he's in love with this dream girl he has. But then it turns out later, she doesn't like him either. So I felt much better about that because I was really sad for her for a minute. Yeah, well, I I don't really blame her for not liking Jonathan Price that much because, like, as from the perspective of the dream girl, he doesn't seem like that much of a catch. Oh, no, not at all. I mean, he's happy just to be a drudge in the Hall of Records. Yeah, no ambition. He doesn't really have a lot of game, too, when it comes to wooing. No. So he turns out that Jill Layton, uh, played by Kim Grace, is the woman he's been seeing in his dreams, is the neighbor of Buttle. And when he goes to uh, button things up by handing them a check, a a refund check for the charges incurred in the arrest and murder of this man. Right, so Buttle died during interrogation, and they're going to refund the family for the mistake. Yeah. That feels like something our government is doing currently, right? Absolutely. Uh-huh. So... He shows up, realizes that the woman of his dreams is the neighbor upstairs, and the rest of the movie becomes him pursuing her, and he accepts a promotion and jumps to the head to find more information about her. This gets this all all along. He's breaking more and more of these bureaucratic laws, right, because he's obsessed with this woman who's inexplicably been in his dreams before. Um, Before we move on, though, I just want to mention a couple other things that happened one in the restaurant there is a terrorist bombing that then is promptly ignored by everybody that scene is also great everything with the mom i loved and um also so when he goes to the buttles 
a flat to give them the check. He, first of all, he's driving this terrible little shitty car that is basically a one-person version of the Homer from The Simpsons. It's got that bubble for you to see out of. Mm-hmm. And then he gets out, and there is a gang of school children robbing another child at gunpoint. Oh, I thought they were kind of just playing up, like, yeah. play-acting, like, interrogating That's somebody. the thing, is they're play-acting the arrest that they're, like, play-act... They've got the kid in a bag, just like the dad was. Oh, I thought they were serious. No, no, they're... I mean, that's the the, I, the dark idea that this is, like, society, you know, that I kids see. are learning from. Gotcha, gotcha. Well... But Anyhow. they do trash the car while he's in the apartment. They do wreck it. Yeah, it just it, it brought to mind to me the fact that I find British children terrifying. Those urchins, man. Oh, street urchins are so scary. Yeah, this brings about probably the most touching scene, or at least, you know, moving scene in the movie, which is when he has to bureaucrat- bureaucratically explain to the uh, widow of this man why he's there and what he's doing. To give her a refund for her husband's death. She's yeah. not having it. No, she freaks out at him. But then he goes home and finds out that his air conditioning's out. And, ta-da, the actual Tuttle arrives. He's Robert De Niro, and he's a superhero who fixes people's heating problems illegally. Yeah, that's the why the government wants to put the screws on Tuttle, because he's a rogue... Uh, he, he illegally fixes stuff. I he mean, illeg- that's why he got involved in the revolution, because he doesn't like all the paperwork. Yeah, I mean, and what could be more terrifying to this government than someone who refuses to do paperwork? Uh, this was the first time I watched the movie, though, and thought... So what happens is Tuttle arrives to save the day with the air conditioning, but then... The central services send their own guys, and that puts a that throws a wrench into things. Now, these who's to say these two guys, played by Bob Hoskins and someone else, may not have just strode in and fixed the air conditioning. Like the idea is that he called an emergency hotline, and they did show up, and then he has to come up with an excuse to get rid of them because De Niro's already there. But De Niro's already there because in De Niro's mind, it's never going to get fixed. It's just one of those. He's like weird- a vigilante. Yeah. And I think also we can take it as a given that De Niro is much more competent than the government guys. Sure. And that he he does it quick and fast, whereas, you know, we see later when after this whole refund debacle, he goes back to his apartment and the whole place has been completely destroyed because Bob Hoskins and Luigi showed up and are trying (laughs) to find the problem and have ripped his house apart. And even later on, the the climate control is so messed up that things are freezing and they have to wear like biohazard suits to be inside of it. Yeah, so I I think it's not only that he doesn't think they'll show up, but they clearly won't do a very good job. But they they do do that because they're specifically vindictive about, about him scuttling them the first time they show up. Right. Well, that's why it's such a great like comic relief touch. They're not just like playing for laughs or being like, I mean, it's like clever. It's like mean. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're funny and they're sinister. Yeah. Yeah. That's God. Bob Hoskins is so good. So um, he has a few more dreams about fighting this uh, horrible samurai monster. And uh, I the samurai monster was very Fisher King. Mm hmm. He then gets a singing telegram to a party that his mom is hosting. Yep. And he decides to go because he wants his mom to help him get this new job at uh, what other ministry? Where he, The Ministry of Information. The Ministry of Information will give him more access to find his dream girl, Jill. Yes, he's decided to sacrifice his anonymous life and step into the light. But it's all to disastrous ends. Right. 
So he arrives at the Ministry of Information, finally, and uh, the Ministry of Information, Faith, you pointed this out, uh, the Ministry of Magic from Harry Potter looks so much like this. Yeah, I mean, it's this, like, British, um, like, f- like 30s or 40s design, giant halls, like, with big lobbies, and then, like, pokey, like, hallways, tiny offices. With the, yeah, the, the doors along either side, and also, like, those lifts with, like, the, the grate you have to pull open and closed. Mm-hmm. But um, so he uh, winds up getting his very own number on his very own door and he goes through the door into this weird tiny office. Yeah, that is clearly an office that was split into two with this partition that runs over the desk. Yeah. And this leads to the maybe the again, one of the smarter points of the movie is that he eventually finds out he can he reconnects with Michael Palin, his friend Jack. Oh well, well hang on a second. I don't wanna I don't wanna skimp over this office. The partition <laughs> runs over his desk and he winds up fighting with the guy next door over who gets more of the desk. It is very funny. The whole scene is very hilarious. Yeah. yeah. It even it even goes through a poster in the back. Yeah. It's yeah. And then there's and then he goes next door and his co and his uh, the guy who's been trying to take the desk from him has a computer that he doesn't have. He tries to use it to access Jill's information. Uh, There's a whole hilarious thing where the guy gives him the runaround and he clearly knows nothing about computers. But computers are his forte. Yeah. I feel like, you know, the the joke there is the more time someone says something like that, the more competent they clearly are. Mm. And he finally finds out where he can get more information about her and he goes to that office to find his friend jack torture floor who's on the torture floor yes in the ministry of information because really what they've been alluding to and they finally come out with is that the ministry of information is torturing and killing people and the whole name mistake thing is like obviously they don't really care they just get whoever yeah so Michael Palin congratulates him on his new job and gives him the file on the girl along with a new suit. He also drops that they're convinced that she is in league with Tuttle because she's been coming back and, and reporting the false arrest. So she's like this great idea that she because she's calling out a mistake they made, she must be the enemy. Yeah, her her days are numbered according to them. Yeah. Her crime was pointing out the mis- a a flaw fraud. in the system. Yeah. Yeah. One other hilarious thing just about Michael Palin is that he's doing Bring Your Daughter to Work Day as a professional torturer. One of the triplets is there. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of good lines where he keeps getting, he keeps calling her the wrong one. Well, you can't expect him to keep track of everything. There's also a really bizarre uh, blink and you missed it thing at the end of that scene where uh, he's got, uh, Larry's got the new suit on and it's just him and the girl in the office and she says something like, uh, take take the take your clothes off so I can see that big Willie. She says something insanely sexual, and he just gives the like most befuddled, uncomfortable "what now" look, and then it just cuts, and we're back in the lobby or something like. And he's in the elevator, and he has changed. Yes. Ugh. So he finds uh, Jill. She's actually at the ministry mm-hmm. right then, and he follows her to her truck, and he tries to get her to drive away. She refuses because this weirdo has just gotten into her truck. Well, I mean, the way he like tracks her down, like he kind of raises all these alarm bells and he like breaks all these rules um, because he's trying to get to her. And then by the time they're in the truck, people are like after them. Right. And he's freaking out and telling her to drive. And I understand her perspective. Like this weirdo has just come up to her and wrecked her whole day and is now telling her to drive. And it's like, who the fuck are you? At the same time, his desperation of trying to get her the hell out of there, like he's so scared I'm kind of like, lady, 
drive away. Like, y- you can kick him out of your car later, but he is scared of something. And in this society of, you know, fascist dictatorship, you should probably run from something if someone thinks you should run. I mean, she wasn't correct, but she was cool. So I thought that oh, yeah. was a really good introduction to, like, their relationship, like, her character in that situation. That she, is a, like, doesn't give a fuck. That yeah, is also ostensibly yes. what she does. She pulls away and he's like, I'm in love with you. And she's like, you know what? I think I might be in love with you, too. And he's like, really? And then she's like, yeah. And she hits a green button and the door opens and she kicks him back out. Yeah, he was too thirsty. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. He came on way too strong. Now, this is no a, game. Like you said, Faith. this is definitely this then gets to one of the slower, maybe weaker parts of the movie where the two of them are on the road for a very interminably long amount of time. Yeah. And he really fucks up her job and her life, basically. Yeah. I mean, the fact that she falls for him later is frustrating to me because totally like, inexplicable. He's a a dweeb and B like messes everything up for her. And then because he saves her after putting her in danger, suddenly she's like into it. And yeah, it doesn't really make any sense. And the movie goes out of its way to show us that she doesn't have a re- connection to Tuttle because she sees him for the first time and doesn't recognize and doesn't him. recognize just who's that. Yeah, but. Well, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, but true love conquers all, and they do get together. Right. So one of my least favorite sequences, except for that one line. Oh, God. All right. We'll, we'll come up to that one. Yeah. So um, he sees her through a terrorist attack, which then gets interspersed with one of his... Uh, so he, he basically has a psychotic break with reality after the terrorist attack, and his dream takes over reality for a while, and he finds himself arrested, but he manages to get out find her again uh he has some fun with jack tuttle filling bob hoskins's bio suit with enough shit not jack harry oh harry tuttle archibald tuttle yeah right so tuttle comes back just long enough to uh drown bob hoskins and shit (laughs) and then swing away and then uh sam lowry reconnects with jill and they decide to hide out at his mom's place for a while. And then he realizes that the solution to all their problems is for him to break into the Ministry of Information and change her status to deceased, ostensibly wiping her from the public record. Right. And so he gets back and he tells her that she's dead. And we get that line you liked, Faith, which is, you're dead. And then she says, how about a little necrophilia? Yeah, I mean, I liked the line, but like her deciding that she's suddenly like now down to bang... I didn't really buy it. Let's talk about Thirsty. Lowry, like, jumps across the bed. Well, he, doesn't he let out a woohoo? Yes. Woohoo! Well, so it starts, you know, looking like this is going to be the happy ending of the movie, because, you know, they're finally banging, the dream is now coming in as, like, the happy ending, the dreams come true, but then the cops arrive, and everybody gets arrested. Yeah. It's implied that Jill gets shot at this point, mm-hmm. and then Lowry finds himself waking up in this horrific-looking torture silo. Mm -hmm. This was one of the coolest sets, I think, was uh, he's in this chair in this massive open space. I would agree. It looked really cool. It It did. It looks really cool because it's a real place. That was actually a location shot. Where is it? Somewhere in the UK. They found an actual silo. Oh, it looked like it looked good. Yeah, it's maybe like that... Battersea Power Station or something oh, like yeah, yeah. something like that. But so this is where uh, uh, things diverged from the director's cut in a way that is really, really rough. Uh, and I won't go into every detail, but this so 
the director's cut does two things very differently. A lot of the dream sequence is just shown in order. It's not interspersed throughout the movie. And because the way it is interspersed throughout this cut really kind of messes up the flow of the plot. And there's this great, there's this, I mean, everything from when they get arrested to the silo, there's, that's where the cut, they lost like 10 minutes of the movie. And it's really some of the A-plus material. What is in it? What is the cut stuff? It's, it's like Sam getting processed. He has a one-on-one with Mr. Helpman that they talk about what's going on and they allude, they they don't, they don't just allude that Jill is dead. Like Mr. Helpman says something like, ah, yes, Jill Layton, we have her down as deceased. And Sam's like, there's a glint of hope in his eye. And he's like, oh no, I did that. And he's like, yeah, it's very weird. We have her down as dead twice. We don't know how that possibly could have happened. And so then when you get into the silo and you have the false end of the happy ending, uh, it, it just kind of like the pacing of it, even though it's, it is a longer cut because it's 10 minutes longer. It, I thought the pacing of going from the bedroom to the silo to the false happy ending was really bad. I see. And I don't think does like the storytelling I think it does it a disservice and some great dialogue is lost in the processing process. Like some great, more, more awesome bureaucratic like stuff, like them describing him, all of the charges he's incurring. More yeah. Kafka S the trial type yeah, one. Yeah. They yeah. lay out, they lay out all of the charges against him, which range from like losing a transportation pod to like the check never being cashed, like all this stuff. But also that dream sequence where he fights a samurai warrior is so much more impressive when it's just something you can watch from start to finish. So our torture scene gets started with the reintroduction. Uh, well, the reintroduction of our baby masked monster, but it turns out just to be a regular guy. And it's his old friend, Michael Palin shock horror. I know. And especially for Michael Palin, you know, he says, to Jonathan Price, you know, you might be upset, but think of how I'm feeling right now. It was really the hardest on him. <laughs> yeah. He has to torture his friend. That's tough. I just love how Michael Palin is like playing against type in in this role. I mean, he'll he'll take you apart with his surgical tools, but with such a charming smile on his face. The classic British way. Yeah. O- outside of this, what what's the other Michael Palin? The, he's so great in this. This is all I can ever think of him. Yeah, I got nothing but Monty Python. Okay. Was he ever in Faulty Towers? Oh, uh, uh, uh what the, uh, er, uh, the Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, Fish Called Wanda. Who is he in that? He's the stuttering, so he's like this, has a stutter throughout the whole thing, and, uh, he's like part of the game there's like you know oh, i don't remember him i just remember kevin klein and um jamie. john cleese well yeah. jamie lee curtis but i wouldn't mistake her for michael palin yeah i feel like his type is like kind of the stuttering like a uh, harmless guy kind of like a less um romantic lead hugh grant yeah yeah totally but not in this movie in this movie he's uh going through some rather terrifying looking tools when all of a sudden ta-da tuttle shows up and he's got the resistance with him, and they repel down from the sky, kill Michael Palin, and rescue Jonathan Price. Yeah. It's a real James Bond moment. Yeah, the headshots, they shoot him in the head and through the mask, and it's quite 
great and graphic and yeah, gory. Well, and then he takes the mask off and just like kind of staggers around for a while with this enormous head slash brain wound. They're also acting on like something that's seemingly hundreds of feet. They're in like the center of the silo and it looks quite perilous. Yeah, it's, it's like a bridge with no rails like in the middle so you could still fall hundreds of feet down. Yeah, and you know that it was the 80s so it was probably an actual fall. Hmm. It's okay. He's a heating engineer. He like knows how it all works. That's yeah. right. We've seen him Spider Maning all over the place as heating engineers do. So they bust him loose. They bust our our, our hero loose. And I want to discuss this uh, action sequence that follows a little bit because whereas I've been pretty into the directing and the filmmaking so far, with one exception that kind of is similar to what I'm about to say. The action directing in this movie, I thought, was incredibly poor. Uh, yeah, I mean, either that or the editing, because it's hard to tell, you know. I can't, given what I was seeing on screen, I find it, yes, the editing was bad, but I find it hard to think that the editor had much to work with, because the problem was that everything was incredibly dark, the, the, mm. everything was very muddled, I couldn't tell. It was same-samey. Yeah, and I couldn't see who was where. And the action beats were all very samey, like you said, where, you know, there was not a lot punctuating the action. It was just a lot of guys running here to there and shooting machine guns with not a lot of variation. Yeah. It was just a very... The rest of the movie is great, but I don't think Terry Gilliam is a very good action director. I couldn't agree more, Dave. Like, I mean, granted, I have a slightly lower tolerance for action than most people. However, a well-directed action scene can keep me engaged. But I really did find myself getting bored and kind of getting distracted by other things during this part of the movie. Yeah, Yeah. well, it's like every time you see it, you take for granted the Avengers or the Lord of the Rings. Every time it's done well, or Steven Spielberg, even Avatar, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you got you kind of like it's done well. And if it's done well, your brain doesn't think about it. But if you if you have to think like, who is that? What's happening? Am I supposed to care? And you start to check out. That's when you're in. Yeah. Yeah, Well, yeah, exactly. And the other part of the movie I thought was kind of. Uh, subject to the same criticism i would say is that um that chase sequence where they're in her truck which most of the chase sequences and terry gilliam said regretfully he does think that that was the weakest section of the movie he said he was trying too hard to do a spielbergian thing and he said he didn't feel like he he said if he could go back and do it differently he he would have cut that out at least he was self-aware about it yeah yeah and it was early on in his career so maybe he was experimenting yeah look i'm not saying he's a bad director i'm not saying that it ruins the movie i'm just saying like this this one part of it i just found kind of no it's, not it's great. this section and the and the truck drive are like in a movie that's already long and sort of confusing they don't help it really drags right. it down like they could have cut it to two or three minutes so the action sequence happens and uh tuttle and sam lowry jonathan price get away but then uh things start getting a little weird yeah, then we get back in sort of the dreamscape where Tuttle gets consumed by paperwork, literally. That that was a great touch. I mean, even though I had some problems with like the last 20 minutes, I thought that touch was wonderful. Absolutely, yeah. It starts just with one stray piece of trash paper getting caught on his shoe, and he just can't seem to shake it off. Yeah. And then just more and more hit him and slowly envelop him until he's just a pile of paperwork yeah like he goes he turns into a mummy and then he's just the paper and, and sam, he's gone and sam pushes through all the paper and he's he's disappeared yeah and it's, that, it's a it's very dreamlike and it's very scary oh and then they go to and then it continues down the rabbit hole he 
he ends up in this strange funeral for his mom's friend that where his mom has been replaced by Jill. The actress, the actress Kim Kim Christ is is dressed up like his mom. And there's been like a reoccurring bit, like that his mom's getting younger and younger with her procedure, and like attracting like younger and younger men around her. Mm-hmm. And so you know she's trying not to know him. Yeah, it's really surreal and 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 off putting. So the the secret police are still following him though, and they bust into this funeral, and he winds up having only one choice for his method of escape. He's got to jump into that casket. Yeah, and he opens the casket to reveal the just slimy residue. It's like his, a pile of jelly. Yeah, his his poor mom's friend has been reduced to just a pile of goo. Yeah, his mom got a successful plastic surgery, which is, she's been getting younger through the whole movie, but his poor mom's friend, whatever she got done, it, she's been slowly decaying through the whole film, and this is the uh, culmination of that, it would seem. I mean, I would absolutely trust Jim Broadman with my face and t- entire body. Well, yeah, although the other doctor who he's feuding with comes in, and when they're arguing, the other doctor does say that Jim Broadbent's technique only lasts for six months, and then it, like, you yeah. sort of break. Well, so, well, we never see what happens to Jonathan Price's mom. Maybe she winds up in that same casket eventually. So he, he goes through the casket, which is another Alice in Wonderland-esque rabbit hole, and he winds up in a house that is attached to the truck that Jill is driving and she's alive. Yay. Happy ending. And he climbs into the cab and they're in the countryside and there's green hills. And they're in one of those like really, uh, really in now micro houses. Like oldie England style green fields. Oh, yeah. It's it's real, real old school. They've managed to beat Brazil. Or have they? Dun, 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 dun. Because, yes, as it turns out. Moments after our happy ending is making us feel all good. It We zoom out, and it turns out we've just been in Jonathan Price's mind this entire time. He was being tortured, and his brain broke, and he just started having this fantasy. And we've got uh, Michael Palin, our torturer, and uh, Mr. Helpman standing there, kind of give him the old wake up, wake up, but he won't wake up, and they're just like, ah, well, looks like he's gone. And they walk on out of there. And they leave Jonathan Price a grinning, drooling, broken man in his torture chair. Who is quietly humming. That's Brazil, guys. That was Brazil. Uh, the end. Yes. So, what did we think of that? Well, I already have an opinion, so I'll cede the floor to you both. Okay. Faith, do you want to go first? I mean, it's interesting. I think it's a little complicated for me because this movie started off and I was right there in it from the beginning. I was so engaged. I wasn't expecting to laugh so much. I should have known because it's Terry Gilliam, ex-Monty Python member, Mm. that it was going to be hilarious. But it it was so funny. It was so clever. Like, it was all the unique quirkiness that I'd been hoping for. And then the love story came in, and Robert De Niro wasn't in it that much, and the chase sequences happened, and I kind of started to, it started to drag a little bit for me. I got a little disappointed with that sort of, you know, from the middle, close to the end. I mean, I did appreciate some of the moments at the end. I really liked the paperwork, death. I, I, 
I did appreciate the unhappy ending, 1984 style. Um, I think I would have not been really happy with if it was a good ending. I wouldn't have matched with what they were saying about the society. So I don't know. I really liked the parts that I liked, but I don't know about some of the other sections. Yeah, I, I would say I broadly agree with that. I think that it was two thirds of a fantastic movie. Like most of the way through, I was thinking this movie freaking rules. I love it. And then we paused for a sec so uh, someone could hit the bathroom because we've been watching for like three hours at that point. And then I, I looked and I said, there's still like an hour left of this film. Jesus Christ. And roughly from that point on, it sort of felt like it started to fall apart a little bit. M- maybe fall apart is too strong a word, but it, it became weaker. And I think especially, especially at the very end, once he hits the the torture chamber and it becomes the fantasy. As interesting as some of those fantasy sequences were, I don't think they were nearly as strong as all the black humor, satirical, uh, bureaucratic, you know, stuff that came beforehand. And so it winds up on a slightly sour note, not just saying it has an unhappy ending, but just the last thing you see, I think, is the weakest. So mostly really, really great, but not entirely. Yeah, like I know if we were like, basically going along with Jonathan Price and following him throughout the movie. So we don't really cut away to other characters' point of view, but I just kind of wish we'd had more to flush out Jill, you know, seeing because she started out kind of at a journey at the beginning, you know, try to figure out what happened to her friend, yeah, try to get some justice. we see justice. her before Jonathan Price, Right, so we could have seen a little bit of, like, what she was going through, how she was, like, a badass, and she, you know, her life was kind of in the... um you know, underclass and how they worked a little bit more, you know, like there, we could have flushed yeah. out a little bit more from other people's point of view. Um, and I, and I think we could have cut out some of those um, chase sequences and had, and had that towards the end. Like how did it all fall apart? The revolution. I like that. Cause it was clearly like never going to succeed, but we don't show any, there's no planning shown. It's just like these shadowy people of which Robert De Niro's character is a part, you know, just show up. Mm. There could have been some background with them. Yeah, I, I'm going to shock you both and actually say that this gave me an opportunity to reevaluate my personal opinion on this movie. Oh, and wow. So I think still that there are elements of this movie that are just super fantastic and really worthwhile. But I was carrying around this movie the same way we talked about people in Dune, that there's a sect of people who brag about how Dune is the greatest movie that you've never seen. And I feel, unfortunately, that <sighs> I was perhaps a bit too much like that type of person with this movie. Hang because on, Josh. It is do a, not beat yourself it, up. I'm not. I might beat myself up. But I'm. I'm willing to say that this is a good movie. But you have to be someone who is interested in film, or interested in production, or art direction, or. And I think the great things about it are it's a super bleak story, and you don't see a lot of movies that are just depressing, and they wear it on their sleeve, and. It has a lot of cool art direction and things that I think are very important to to see if you want to be someone who's who's you know working in in the film or the arts or something like that. But if you showed this to a mass audience, I totally would understand them disliking it, and I think it would be they'd be well within their right to because it's confusing as fuck. And I realized I only understand every single thing that's happened because I've seen it like fifteen times. Well, I also think I understood it because I am a 
savvy and sophisticated film viewer and i pay attention to shit and so i wasn't lost at all actually well but there is stuff like the singing telegram where you literally can't understand what she says hmm. you can't understand a single well, i can because i'm british <laughs> i yeah. mean the little girl you said she says something dirty to him i just took your word for it because i couldn't follow a single thing she said i heard the word willie she did i heard that but i didn't know i other than that, that i didn't know what she was talking but this about. is a real movie secret thing where the woman who played the singing telegram was incomprehensible apparently also to british audiences because oh. if she had like a welsh accent or something and she's singing so high pitch oh that is the most incomprehensible and accent. so like terry gilliam was like i he had thought about subtitling it but he thought you know british people should be able to get this and they're at all the test screenings people were like i have no idea what the singing telegram was about and he he was like eh it resonated with Welsh audiences. Yeah, I, I mean, and I may, and I may be getting that wrong. I mean, it was Welsh, something like that. But anyway, so my opinion is, it is, a, it is a strong movie in some respects. But I think every every element that you guys have highlighted is a hundred percent on the money. I, I would also toss out one other group of people who might appreciate this film would be anyone who's uh, particularly a fan of nineteen eighty four. Even though this is a loose adaptation of that, it captures the spirit of it and maybe even to a degree the kind of ambiance and aesthetic extremely well it's a really nice cool adaptation of that with maybe even a little a few dashes of brave new world tossed in there too sure yeah if you like yeah orwellian totalitarian society and monty python and monty python and kafka and it is so weird. I mean, it's hard. It's DDC. Um, like, would this get made today? And then we. So we're going to talk about the controversy, a little bit. Let's um. Let's talk about how it performed for a sec first. So we already went over the budget. It was fifteen million dollars, and the box office was nine point nine million. So not super successful. Yes, but it was famously under budget. So I think <laughs> they landed okay. They landed like close to breaking even. Because oh. the budget was 15, but they only ended up spending like 10, I think, uh, of the 15. Hmm. Okay. Okay. The movie was nominated for two Academy Awards, uh, Best Screenplay and Best Art Direction. Didn't win them, though. And it was not nominated for Best Director. Uh, bec- the Academy kind of shunned Gilliam because of uh, he had a lot of fights with the studio. Hmm. I guess that makes sense. Has he ever won an Oscar? No. I just really don't think he seems to fit into that kind of club, you know? Like, it doesn't seem like he wants to either get along or make movies that get along. Right, because even when you have cases of directors who make what you wouldn't consider a traditional Hollywood blockbuster, I'm thinking specifically about the most recent winner, Guillermo del Toro. Mm -hmm. He is such a gregarious... The most recent winner is actually Peter Farrelly for Green Book, you son of a bitch. Uh, didn't Guillermo del Toro win Best Director? No, Alfonso Cuaron for Roma. Oh, you're right. I'm a year. I'm a year behind. Sorry, I I put the whole most recent Oscars completely out of my well, brain. I don't know. That's probably less embarrassing than me thinking Green Book won Best Director. Uh, yeah, but also, but I mean, Shape of Water is like a very odd film to be winning the Oscar. I mean, get, uh, th- this is neither here nor there. Basically, what I'm saying is like, you know, Guillermo del Toro seems like he would play the game very well, whether intentionally or not, because he's a really nice dude. Terry Gilliam comes off as a little prickly. He's crotchety, crotchety for sure. Well, yeah. what, so basically, the, the whole story behind the release of this movie is a, is a bit crazy and, and reflects all of that. And I, and I don't want to just take the mic for 10 minutes here, but essentially... Take it for two. They produced the movie 
they had a deal to make the movie where they were going to uh terry gilliam and his producer were going to make the movie universal agreed to contribute nine million dollars to distribute it in the u.s and fox agreed to contribute six million dollars and they got the european distribution rights so it was made it was released in europe by fox it was two hours and 22 minutes long and it was did decent business especially in france it did really well in france and it was critically, that makes a lot of sense it was critically well received they love their bureaucracy over there oh yeah and their weird shit the president of Universal and his team screened the two hour and 22 minute cut and found it unreleasable. They didn't think it was going to appeal to a mass audience. And they asked Gilliam to go back and re-edit it. And after months and months of Gilliam refusing to re-edit it the way they wanted, they wanted it to be a happy movie. They wanted it to be a love story. They didn't like the end. Uh, they wanted to cut out the whole th- they wanted to really streamline it to be like an hour and a half love story between Jill and Sam Lowry. Typical Hollywood notes. Yeah, but more extreme because they paid their own editing team to recut it and they took they essentially took it out of Gilliam's hands and said, we're doing this because contractually he couldn't be longer than two hours and 10 minutes or they wouldn't release the movie. That was in, that was in his agreement with Universal. Wow. And so eventually, they started screening it. They started doing these clandestine screens for the LA critics, and the LA critics gave it the best picture award and the best director and the best screenplay. And this forced the Universal's hand, and they finally agreed to release not the two hour and 22 minute cut, but a two hour and 12 minute cut that Gilliam had made that didn't reflect their happy ending changes, but was 10 minutes shorter, which is the version we watched. I was just thinking that nowadays a studio wouldn't allow someone to release a movie that was less than two hours and 10 minutes. Gilliam famously quipped at them, Star Wars is 217. And they said- Most that, of the th- Star Wars movies are in the 220 range. And they, yeah. well, they were like, yeah, but that's Star Wars. This you, is no Star Wars, yeah. sir. <laughs> yeah. Well, rightly so. It is no Star Wars. But so basically, once it won all the LA Critics Awards, they got it out, they released it, but it was a really haphazard release- and so it didn't garner a lot of Academy, like not a lot of, they didn't really, and at the same time they had produced Out of Africa that year and they wanted that to win all the Oscars. So that's where they threw all their Oscar campaign behind. Hilariously enough, the next year, Universal would produce and release Howard the Duck. Uh, they really believed in that picture. A $35 million albatross of a turd of a movie. Yeah, but George Lucas produced it, so maybe it could have been the next Star Wars. <laughs> And basically, I think a few years later, all the, all the executives that stifled Brazil were out at Universal because of that. Dave, I am not watching Howard the Duck for the podcast. I just want to put that out there. Ugh. I am not watching Howard the Duck for the podcast. Do we watched worry. it so that we could go see a live podcast talk shit about it. And even for in that context, I don't know if it was worth watching. Jesus Christ. All right. Well, anyway, back on track. So, but the point the point is, Gilliam was a bad boy, and he and he didn't accept the changes, and he fought with them. And he clan- he did this whole secret clandestine campaign to get his cut released. Well, I mean, I think the cut we watched was fine. I-, I know you say the extra stuff helped, but I think if this movie was much longer, I might have started losing patience. 98% of critics on Rotten Tomatoes give this a po- positive review, and uh, 90% of audiences as well. It's got slightly less uh, dominance on Metacritic. It's 88 out of 100 there, but still pretty strong. In terms of what the professionals have to say about the movie, here's a couple of positive reviews. So first up is Pauline Kael. She said, Terry Gilliam presents a retro-futurist fantasy 
a melancholy, joke-ridden view of the horribleness of where we are now and the worse horribleness of where we're heading. It's like a stoned, slapstick 1984, a comedy, a nightmare comedy in which the comedy is just an aspect of the nightmarishness. Nailed it. That's yeah. pretty good writing. She said, visually, it was original bravura, uh, an original bravura piece of movie making with weirdly ingenious vertical qualities. The camera always seems to be moving up and down, rarely across, and you get the feeling that people live and work squashed at the bottom of hollow towers. That's a pretty cool observation, too. Yeah. yeah. And yes, uh, Faith, Pauline Kill's writing is pretty damn good. Even when I don't agree with her, she certainly has a great way of expressing herself. James Berardinelli. Taken at face value, Brazil is a stinging, strange, lovian satire of the power of the bureaucracy in an Orwellian landscape. The, vis- the vision is clearly Gilliam's. His penchant for striking visual flourishes and dark comedy have seeped into the fabric of the narrative, but it's not the strongest story he has worked with. Plot-wise, Brazil is rather humdrum and derivative. Its energy and appeal derive not from its thin characters or their actions, but from the world they inhabit. At its heart, it's not the most original idea, but Gilliam's approach infuses it with freshness. But it is ultimately a downer. Again, very accurate. Spot on again, yeah. And then, so those were more positive reviews. I want to give one negative review, which is from... Roger Ebert. This was actually the only negative review I could find. I feel the, like I could have predicted this. They're time. out. They're out there. There were there were detractors. It was not universe. It was like a 50-50 split, I, which I think is fair. You either love this, like, well, not love, but you either like this movie or you dislike it. Sorry. <coughs> uh, so hope that makes the pod. Ebert said. All of this is strangely familiar. The outlines of Brazil are much the same as those of 1984, but the approach is different. It's as if Gilliam sat down and wrote out all of his fantasies, heedless of production difficulties, and then they were filmed, this time heedless of sense. The movie is very hard to follow. I have seen it twice, and I am still not sure exactly who all the characters are or how they fit. Gilliam was furious about that because they came in under budget. He was really, I, I read like a response he, he put out to that. This is the thing. Other directors don't respond to critics, but like Gilliam did. Yeah. So. I mean, also sometimes when I re- read a review like that, I'm like, that sounds like a personal problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they're, they're trying to talk about their personal experience in terms of giving a guide for people so it's but like that's you know if he found it hard to follow maybe he was worried other people would but i honestly did not find this film that hard to follow it was just there wasn't a lot there there that's a fair i think it's also a fair criticism of it it is a little bit hard to follow what's not fair is he dreamed this up and then they shot it because that's what making a movie is by definition well i think what he's saying is that it's all just like you know, he, he it doesn't fit together well, or yeah, he okay. puked his dreams out onto the page and then didn't bother to give them enough connective tissue. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. So, in terms of you know how people have viewed this movie over time, in two thousand four, Total Film, a British film magazine, named Brazil the twentieth greatest British movie of all time. Okay. I always find it weird how they define what is a British movie or an American movie. Well, how do they? Well, like, make well, I don't choice? know exactly. I think it's depending on like where it's shot or who financed it. Like, I think the definition can change. I mean, if it's a matter of, well, a lot of the actors are British, then you've got an awful lot to work with. Don't Indeed. you? Indeed. Yeah. Also, it's got Robert De Niro in it, definitively American. 
Unless he's just such a good actor. He's been methoding this whole time. I see, like, Robert De Niro is actually his greatest character of all. His name is actually um, Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh. All right. Empire, another British film magazine, uh, made a list of the 500 greatest films of all time and ranked Brazil number 83. That was in 2011. Uh, the magazine Wired ranked Brazil number five in its list of the top 20 sci-fi movies. Yeah, I, I, I agree. But that was in 2002, and we've had an awful lot of great sci-fi since then. I still think it's top 20 somewhere. I never know what to do with, like, greatest movie lists. Yeah, well, I'm just tossing it out there. And then lastly, um, the style that Terry Gilliam puts in this movie, and particularly uh, the director Jean-Pierre Genet, and uh, his collaborator, who I wasn't actually familiar with until I was looking this up, a guy named Mark Caro, uh, they said it had a huge influence on them and their career. So you see movies like Delicatessen or mm-hmm. Amelie or, dare I say, Alien Resurrection show a lot of influence from Brazil. Or even Children of Men, which opens with a terrorist bombing in a storefront. I mean, there's it's kind of it's like one of those movies that's resonated secretly. Oh, yeah. You, you in, can see, I mean, Super Mario Brothers. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, in point of fact, having Bob Hoskins and his Luigi, mm-hmm. uh, the Hudsucker proxy taking all of the like uh, worker scenes in the office building. Totally. Aesthetic. Yeah, I think the office like deadpan kind of humor has probably been very influential on people like, you know, Mike Judge and stuff like that. That too. Yeah. Yeah. That was also apparently an homage to Kubrick, too. That was supposed to be like... Uh, I see it. Yeah. I so. see it. So it's been very influential on uh, some very creative people, so... Yeah, you and if you, if you want to look smart at a party and look, you know you're ta- you know a lot about movies, we've given you a lot of little snippets of material to throw out about Brazil. You're welcome. Indeed. But we have to still give out the most important thing about this movie, which is, Faith, is this movie better late or never? Keeping in mind that when I say that, I mean better late is that your cinematic life and experience have been improved overall by your experience of having watched this film. And there's something critical about it, necessary even, to be a true movie fan. Whereas never means basically if you'd never seen this movie in your whole life and then you died, you'd be like, you know what? That's fine. Okay, so I know I've talked a little bit down on some of the parts of this movie, and that still stands. Um, So it's not as much um, of a slam dunk as I was hoping for. However, I think that it's still definitely a better late than for me. Like, I am glad that I saw this movie. I'm glad I got to talk about this movie with people who already knew about Terry Gilliam and the film. Um... Yeah, so it's definitely better late for me. Right on, right on. So I went on a bit of a back and forth with this in my mind. I started off being absolutely better late because I do think this movie is really good. And despite, like you, Faith, every sort of negative thing I've said about it, I did actually wind up enjoying this movie very much. But then I thought about, you know, if I had gone through the rest of my life and never seen it, would that have mattered? And I started thinking, maybe not. Maybe it's more of a never. Like, I've seen a lot of Gilliam's work at this point, and I don't think it's my favorite of his. And I don't think, you know, it, it adds too much of my knowledge of him as a director. So maybe I could have gotten away with never on this. Ooh, which way are you going to go, Dave? But then, as we were just talking about a moment ago, I started thinking about how aesthetically influential this movie has been on other filmmakers and other creators. And 
how the style you see in this movie wound up seeping out and influencing all this other stuff. And it's really cool to see where that came from. So I ultimately wound up coming back to tentatively, not not super hardcore, but I do believe that this movie is also better late. So that yeah, and this is where I'm going to shock the room. But oh my god. I feel really weird because maybe I'm not allowed to do this, but I think for a lot of people this would be a never. I agree. And I think I'm willing to call it a never because of that. Because I think that we have just too many people would watch this movie and be mad that I made them watch it. Watch it. So you're making a judgment for the rest of all movie watchers everywhere. For me, obviously it's a better late because I lo- I personally love it. But I but loving it isn't the question. Exactly. And I think based on the standards of of that, I think it's I it's a never. I I think, you know, in in the past I've made that distinction too where, you know, I'm like, I liked it and it's a better late for me and for general audiences probably never. And that's probably the case for this movie, I agree. Um, It's just that, you know, I I wound up seeing so much that I recognized on screen. Right. And I think that, so yeah, for general audiences, maybe you can skip this one, but... I, I think Josh has kind of alluded to it that like people who are interested in the process of like filmmaking and the exactly. history of filmmaking. If you're into film, then it's definitely an important part of the canon. I'm so Seeing stoked that you really guys both deal. said it was better late. So I'm glad that you I love that you guys said that. I just think that there's like like half of my high school graduating class would it's 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 definitely a never. Well, fortunately, I've I've contacted them. We have the results here. <laughs> They've, so they've all watched Brazil. Number one on the list, there's Danielle Jones, class of uh, 1999. She says, who are you? Who's Josh? Uh, please don't ever contact me again. Which, by the way, I have to play my reunions and things. So if you're if you're in my high school class, you're listening to this podcast for some reason, and you're offended, I think you won't like the movie Brazil. I'm sorry. I'm sorry now. I'm sorry. I'm genuinely sorry. But you will be watching the movie at the reunion. Yes, we're going to screen it. All right, everybody. Well, that's our show for today. If you would like to contact the podcast, please email us at betterlatethanneverpod at gmail.com. Or you can tweet at us at betterlate underscore pod. Josh, would you like to plug something? No, but I would like to add one more piece of trivia. Okay. The... Happy version studio cut was eventually released on TV. So the version that we watched was released in theaters. There's the two hour and 22 minute version that was released in Europe. And for years, no one saw the happy love story version until they had to put this on TV. And they put that version on TV because it was only 97 minutes long. Lame. They were both included on the laser disc. And the the director's cut and the ninety seven love love conquers all cut, and the laser disc was one hundred and fifty dollars. You heard it here first, folks. Get out there and find that laser disc. All right, Josh, it was good to have you, Faith. It's always fantastic to have you. Thank you, Dave. So, uh, yeah, we'll catch you guys later, and uh, I want to talk to you about ducks. <laughs> Do 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 do